Scripture. Mark 3, beginning in verse 13, says, And he, referring to Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, uh, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. And Father, we humbly ask in this moment for just the supernatural grace and the help of your Holy Spirit as we continue now to worship, having sang and prayed and fellowshiped. Lord, we ask that we as an act of worship now can give to you our fullest attention that you might write your will upon the fleshly tablet of our heart. We ask, prepare us, Lord, and speak now by your Spirit's ministry through what you've spoken in your word. And we ask expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, oftentimes when we feel grateful for an opportunity to be involved in something, we refer to that as being privileged to participate. Whether it's being privileged to participate maybe in someone's wedding or being privileged to participate in some experience, whatever it may be, when we feel that sense of gratitude to have had the opportunity to be invited to participate in something or to be involved in something, we speak of it in that way. Boy, it was a privilege or we were privileged to participate. And perhaps I think there is no greater privilege, if we really think about it, to participate in something in this life than to get the honor and the opportunity beyond just being saved and know that we're going to heaven, to be involved and to be used by our Lord in any way to be a part of the things of serving him for the kingdom of God to be involved in his work on this earth, sharing Christ with others and ministering. And our Lord allows us at times to do things for him as his representatives. And that is a tremendous privilege because if we think about it, our Lord, think of it, he could clearly do anything and all things completely by himself. It's not as if he's looking saying, I don't know if I can handle this. I better ask Tony for some assistance. It's not like he's looking at something he wants to accomplish and he doesn't have at his disposal powerful angelic beings that he can send forth from the throne of God who would be much more obedient, way less sloppy, way probably more compliant and faithful than most of us. But the reality is we know that the Lord accomplishes his work and advances his ministry and his plans and purposes shockingly, through human beings. He allows us not only to have our sins forgiven and to know that we're going heaven, but this amazing reality to touch and in some way to participate in things of the blood-bought church and the kingdom of God. He allows us to be involved with him in what he's doing on this earth. 
And here we see Jesus in our passage this morning inviting some of his followers who believed in him and followed him to now in a sense become fellow workers together with him. And we learn lessons of how Jesus does this, which we can apply for ourselves as well, as the Lord is still recruiting those to serve with him. Now, if you remember the backdrop as we come into our verses this morning, we saw in our prior section, the ministry of Jesus at this point is greatly flourishing. It's expanding tremendously. We saw in the prior verses, verses 7, particularly down through verse 11 in chapter 3, numerous references now how great multitudes are following Jesus and coming to him not only from the area of Israel, but even outside of the borders of Israel. And great multitudes are now coming to him. The work is rapidly expanding. In fact, if you glance down in verse 20, it actually tells us there that the multitudes came together again so that Jesus and his disciples could not so much as even eat bread. The idea is they didn't even have time to stop to eat. The idea is, is the ministry is so busy at this point, there are so many needs, so many people to attend to and to minister to. And it's at this juncture now, as the ministry is expanding, Jesus assessing the situation as a wise steward in handling his affairs, wanting to reach many souls and to help as many people as possible, that we now see Jesus beginning as the Lord over his ministry to begin to recruit fellow workers, to recruit, if you would, assistants to involve in his ministry work in order to help participate with him in doing that work together with him as an extension of him, representatives, those who he can send out to attend to things, to represent him, and to help facilitate his work, as well as to also become prepared to understand, to carry on his work. Because Jesus knew from this moment already that after he died upon the cross, making payment for our sins, and rose again from the dead victoriously, that after about 40 or so days in a glorified body on the earth, that he was going to ascend back into heaven where he came from, to the right hand of the Father, but that his ministry work was to carry on. In fact, it was to have greater extents and further impact to reach the whole world. And no doubt Jesus, understanding his public ministry conducted in his physical human body, lasted for three and a half years. But that was just the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That Jesus would continue to minister through human history with even further reach after he ascended back to heaven. And now he's beginning to extend the ministry to these 12 selected men that we find initially here, who he appoints and he empowers, and he's preparing for his ministry now to continue onward, to continue to have further reach. We know right before Jesus ascends back to heaven, at the end of Mark's gospel, he commissions all of his followers, really, all disciples who are committed learners to him, to basically keep his ministry work going and that he would be with them. We read in Mark chapter 16, right before Jesus ascends, he says this, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. And in my name, they will cast out demons they will lay hands on the sick, even as we see referred to here in our verses, and they will recover. And the Bible says that then after the Lord spoke that, 
He was received up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them from heaven, but now through his spirit dwelling within all believers, the Lord was working together with them as they went out as representatives and they became channels for his work to carry onward after he departed. Matthew 28, many of us know that as well. We often refer to it as the Great Commission same idea there. Right before Jesus ascends, Jesus tells all the disciples in that moment, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go now, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And again, he said, and surely I am with you always, all the way out to the end of the age. So again, we see Jesus making preparation for his work to go onward, and now we begin to see the early stages of that, where we now read in our verses this morning a record of Jesus' spiritual recruitment of these initial 12 men who become, as we know them, his apostles, authorized to represent him as an extension of his ministry work, and he sends them out to fulfill his mission and these men also become, we know, foundational as the initial leaders in the establishment of the early church. Well, look at me back in verse 13. As the text begins, it tells us that at this point now, with the crowds coming, the ministry expanding, verse 13, Jesus says, went up on the mountain, and he called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. So though Jesus has multitudes of followers, he now ascends, it says, up the mountain. The idea is he goes up to higher ground, to a higher elevation. And from that place of higher elevation, he now personally decides and desires to recruit, particularly these 12 that we'll see appointed workers that he'll now commission. Now, Luke's account of these same events gives to us another detail that gives us some interesting insight. Luke's account in chapter 6, verse 12, of this same event tells us this, it came to pass in those days that Jesus went up on the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God, and then as we read verse 13, that then he called to himself those he wanted and they came to him. So Luke informs us that our Lord Jesus, who represents, remember, the perfect and the ideal man. Jesus represents the perfection of humanity, what the perfect and ideal human life should be lived like. And he's about to do what? Make a very important decision. He's about to make an extremely significant decision that will have lasting impact a choice that is going to have far-reaching consequence as he appoints the 12 apostles. And before he makes that choice, the Bible tells us he spends some extended time in prayer. That is, he detaches from the everyday affairs, the routine events, all the busyness, and Luke tells us that he goes up on that mountain, and before he chooses or calls the 12 to himself to appoint them, that literally... He continues all night in intercessory prayer together, speaking with his father, communicating, no doubt, through his thoughts. 
seeking and, and listening for direction from the heavenly father, from the throne of God, wanting to be very certain that all he would do was the will of God and not just what sounded right or looked right, but that he was clearly in step with the father. And think of it, who Jesus ends up selecting and appointing, we know the record of their lives much more now from all the gospel accounts and being able to read about these men. The group of men he selects is a very unique group of men. And can I reservedly say, without seeking in any way to be disrespectful to them, his decision probably would not align with logical human reasoning if he hired an HR recruitment person. These probably would not have been the type of individuals that would have been selected, but yet Jesus picks these men because human logic is not all that Jesus operated by. Jesus operated in a much higher degree, and human logic would question, why would you be choosing them? Of all the multitudes, of all that you could select from, are you sure you don't want to go back and see a few more resumes? Are these really the 12 that you want to bring together and entrust to be the leaders of the early church and the first individuals to represent you and to expand your ministry? Jesus, the business may not expand. It may just go belly up in 10 days if that's who you turn everything over to. But yet Jesus chooses these men after spending extended time in prayer, talking it through with his father, and his decision aligns with the higher wisdom of heaven, not just human logic or pragmatic thinking or just human reasoning alone. He's working in accordance with greater long-term purposes of God, and our God, being the eternal God, always sees further down the road. He sees things in people that they don't see in themselves. He sees things in people that others don't see. And he makes this decision wisely with that greater understanding. And I think from Jesus here, we glean a great example for our lives as it pertains to making decisions. And particularly, particularly, I'm not talking about after church, should we go to Denny's or Cheeto Burrito? I'm talking about significant decisions. Those times when we make choices that are going to have some real impact, some lasting significance, or maybe as well, not only that, because think as well, he's also making a decision here in regards to entering into a partnership with particular individuals. He's going to work in close partnership. He's going to share and in a sense work in cooperation with, as well as the fact he's entering into a close relationship. So beyond the significant decisions of life, I think as well, when we are making decisions to partner with certain individuals, when we are making decisions to enter into relationships, very close, serious, significant relationships with people, particularly marriage or dating, or these are important times to take the occasion to sometimes, like Jesus here, take the lesson of our Lord and to be intentional in prayer and seek God for direction. Lord, this is a significant decision. And to talk our thoughts through with God and to spend some time praying it through and talking it out and allowing and asking God to show us things or maybe change our mind if that's what needs to happen or to let us see some things because we're just willing to slow down a little bit that maybe we would see if we gave God a little more time to show us something. 
or that God might give to us a revelation about something or a word of knowledge that he knows about something or, and that we allow the spirit of God and his ministry to work as we seek God in prayer so that he can at times let us see things and sometimes even that pause and that time of prayer just allows even a few more things to unfold. And you get a few more things to see in the picture, and that pause and that time seeking God in prayer gives to us many times a much better ability to, to make a good decision from heaven's wisdom and heaven's perspective rather than just rationale or logical human reasoning. And sometimes it even gives us the faith because the Lord may be telling us to do something, and honestly, in telling us to do something, uh, it may be something that we need the trust and the faith to step into and obey. Or it may be that God's telling us to do something that others are going to kind of go against or they're going to oppose. Listen, I, I, I got married when I was 20 years old, engaged at 19, married at 20. I had numerous people within the church, well-meaning Christians. Tony, this is the worst decision you were ever going to make in your life. You're only 19 years old. What are you doing? And, and, and listen, and, and all those people that said that, first of all, I, I'm getting close to coming up on 29 years of wonderful, enjoyable, blessed marriage. First of all, all those people were wrong. <laughs> and if you ever see this YouTube video, you're wrong. As well as the fact, I hate to say this, but I, it's truthful. Some of those people that were saying that to me, their marriages failed. And they're telling them, oh, you're married, you're too young. Listen. Sometimes we need to pray and seek the Lord because if the Lord tells you to do something, you need to do what the Lord's telling you to do, no matter what it looks like to other people. I, I am certain for Jesus to, I'm picking you, and you people are going, bad idea, Jesus. We were following you up until you, you're picking who to do that? But it's because he sought the Father in heaven, he was able to make good decisions. Again, Isaiah 55 tells us that God speaking says, my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so again, it could be God saying to us, do this when no one else sees why particularly we should be doing that, or it could be that if we spend time in prayer, sometimes God tells us, look, no matter what everyone else is saying or no matter how excited you were about, you should not do that. I wonder on the other side of that if some people would have better marriages if they would have perhaps prayed and sought the Lord before they rushed into marriage or before they married someone and realized afterwards, man, maybe I should have prayed first and now they're struggling. And so it's so wise to recognize, the Bible tells us, Jeremiah 33, that God declares, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Decisions have impact, folks, lasting fruit, good or bad. So when making large decisions, as Jesus was making one here, slow down. Seek God. Take the principle of Jesus. Let him direct. So Jesus works through this for a whole evening. He's just alone. He's working through this with the Father. He's praying extensively. And after that, he now carries out with confidence the will of the Lord Going onward, it tells us here in verse 13 that Jesus did two things. It says, he called to him those he himself wanted, and then their response, they came to him. So notice, first of all, 
as Jesus now recruits those who will become his fellow workers who he's going to appoint to do his ministry, notice it says he he called those that he wanted. In other words, these men did not apply for the job. They did not submit their resume with their qualifications and their talents and skills for consideration of why they should be selected or used. They did not candidate for the ministry position. They didn't compete for it. Uh, They weren't voted in by a majority. Uh, They didn't select these men or appoint these men because they deserved the promotion because they had the most seniority. They'd been around the longest. The reason that these men ended up being pointed to the Lord's work because they were who Jesus wanted. That's all it was. It was the wisdom of God, his choice sovereignly, that he looked and he said, I want that one to do this thing. And it was just the sovereign choice of God. The Lord decided this would be right, and he chose them according to his full knowledge of all things and about all people and how they would operate in that way by his higher wisdom and in connection to really his grace and total understanding. And I firmly believe that to this day still, Jesus as the head of the church, the Lord's workers in any capacity and the Lord's leaders all the more by the grace of God, hopefully they're being selected and appointed the same way. That we, by the grace of God, could do the absolute best we can as the Lord's people to allow the Lord to identify his choice for his work who he wants to use and what capacities and what ministries or who he may want to lead and to always remember that the Lord does not call and choose those who are qualified. He qualifies those he calls. He doesn't call the qualified. That's what the corporate world does. And I understand that to a degree. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus doesn't look for qualifications. He looks for availability. He looks beyond certain things, and he doesn't call qualified people. You're saying that's obvious. He doesn't call qualified people. He qualifies those that he calls. He says, I want this one, and I'll qualify them. I'll give them by the grace of God and the supernatural power they need. And oftentimes you think of it, those the world would probably cast aside or maybe overlook. You look through the Bible, more often than not, those tend to be the individuals that that God ends up calling. He chooses the weak things of the world, right? The Bible tells us the the inexperienced, the unwise, and he by his power does his work through them. And notice the invitation goes forth, but notice the human involvement as well, the response, because what does the end of verse 13 say? Jesus called those he wanted in verse 13 at the end says what? And they came to him. That implies that they responded to the invitation. From up on the mountain, Jesus calls certain men to come up there from among the multitude, and the Holy Spirit chooses to inform us they came to him. They were presented with an opportunity from the Lord, invited and asked, and what did they in a sense have to do? He was inviting them to leave the comfortable place where they were down on level ground at the bottom of the mountain, and he was inviting them to leave where they were comfortably out on level ground, and if you would, to come up to higher ground, 
both literally, and I would venture also to say spiritually, to come up to higher ground to where he was to be able to hear from him that he had something more for them to experience spiritually. He had new steps. He wanted to take them to higher elevations, to greater things in their spiritual lives, and he's calling them now to take steps to pursue these greater things with him. And those 12 men all had a decision in their will. When the invitation of Jesus came, when the opportunity to come up there to him to hear what he was inviting them to do was extended to them, they could have remained where they were. They could have declined. Or the only other option is they could go forward and they answer the call and embrace the opportunity. And that's what the Bible is telling us. They came to him. They made the decision to come and to embrace the privilege and participate in the opportunity and some really incredible things happened in their lives as a result. I don't think any of these men had regrets. I think all of them would say, I'm sure glad that when he called, we said yes instead of saying no. I'm sure every one of them, to some degree, experienced things they never would and thought to themselves, man, can you imagine if when we were given that opportunity to work for the Lord, to serve the Lord, to step into things that were new and different. And could you imagine if we would have said no, man? How wonderful that we said yes. And the things they saw and got to experience and the growth. And because they said yes, Jesus took them further. And folks, the Lord is doing the same thing today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And at times... Jesus, even after you follow him initially as his servant and he saves you, at times in your Christian life, Jesus will call you and I to go further. And he will extend opportunities to us. And he will invite us to step into things, new things, greater things, to take steps forward. However, please hear me, he always respects our will. He never forces us to do anything. He doesn't want forced laborers. He doesn't want people doing things half-heartedly. He gives us opportunities to go further. He gives us occasions to step into ways that he could use our lives, but he always lets us personally decide and to ultimately determine whether or not we desire to take the opportunity or to sit back and to refrain from the opportunity. Again, it's not like the Lord's limited going, please, please. I don't have any other candidates. That's not the case. He extends us the opportunity, but he allows us the freedom to decide. But here's the thing, folks. If we say yes and we see what the Lord has in mind for us, I tell you, just like those disciples, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know many people who say, man, I really regret saying yes to the Lord. I really regret following his will for my life. And we always need to remember his plan for our life is so much better than our own ideas for our lives. His roadmap is way better. And the Lord offers us the privilege to participate in opportunities. Let us respond with yes. I think of where we're heading this coming Wednesday evening, Isaiah chapter 6. Very fitting. There it tells us of the call of Isaiah to ministry. And it says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Conversation among the Trinity. And then Isaiah says, I said, here I am, send me. So again, 
There's that idea. As he's seeking the Lord, he, he overhears. It's almost as if God lets him overhear a conversation in the eternal dimension between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Who should we send? Who do you think would go for us? Who do you think would step into that and do that work for us? And Isaiah says, here I am. I'll, I'll do it. I'll step into that. I'll take the opportunity, and he ends up being used incredibly by the Lord. Of course, we know the story of Esther, chapter 4, the same thing where Queen Esther's uncle Mordecai was encouraging, I remember, to use her platform as the queen to the pagan king at that time because there had been a plan to execute all of the Jewish people, and Mordecai, her uncle, says, Esther, you should go and intercede, reveal to him that you are a Jew as well, and speak on behalf of the people. And she's hesitant and nervous and rightfully fearful. And Mordecai, her uncle, told her this counsel. He said to Queen Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape the king's palace any more than any, all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. In other words, God is still going to do what God's going to do. Mordecai, her wise uncle, was saying, listen, if you don't step into the situation, don't think you're going to stop the plan of God. Don't think that God's not going to bring deliverance and protect his messianic line and preserve and, and, and safeguard his people. He says, God will bring deliverance. God will work through some other means, to which then the following counsel was this, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, Esther, what I'm saying to you is there's an opportunity and perhaps everything God has done in your life up to this point has brought you to this place for this time, for this moment, and the opportunity is there and God will use you if you want to be used. To which she then, hearing that exhortation, then said, look, fast and pray and I'll go in and we'll see what the Lord does. And of course, God beautifully works through that situation. But again, there's that thing, the invitation, the opportunity, but we have to decide. We respond in those given situations. Well, verse 14, Jesus then after they came to him, appointed the 12 that they might be with him that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. So Jesus officially begins now to commission the 12 here as his ministry partners, and he authorizes them by appointing them. And of course, we know he appoints and authorizes them. They now become known by the title apostles, which means an authorized representative sent out with the backing or the authorization of a king's throne sent ones with authorization. That's what they become. And he now appoints them. Reminds us of John 15, where Jesus said to the disciples there, you did not choose me, but I chose and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Again, he wanted them to be clearly aware. Listen, this wasn't your idea. This was not your idea. I chose you. I authorized you, I empowered you, and all I wanted you to do was just be an extension that I could bear good and lasting fruit through your life. And we're told here in our verses, the threefold purpose or plan, you might say, of Jesus in appointing the 12. And notice the progression in it, if you would with me here in the verses. First of all, it says Jesus appointed them, first of all, verse 14, that they might be what? With him. That is, that they might be with him, that at this point now, they would begin to travel around with Jesus, 
and be present with him all the time in his ministry work. They were to spend lots of time together with Jesus, observing his life, seeing how he operated, hearing his teachings, learning everything they could about the way that he ministered. They were to learn lessons through what they heard, through what they saw, how he responded to people, how he handled matters. They were to take note as they were with him all the time, what mattered to Jesus, what things really Jesus put priority upon or that he saw as important, the things that Jesus if you would, perhaps disliked at times. And as they spent time together with him, it, if you would, became sort of on-the-job training by observation to know the heart and mind of the Lord, how he interacted with people, and this was their time of preparation. This was how their training came. Their training and their preparation simply came, notice, not from attending a formal religious training school, Jesus didn't say, I know the work I want to do for your life. Uh, here's a few applications, a few good rabbinic schools. Call me in six years. If you want to go to cemetery, call me in about eight or ten years. He said, no, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be with me. I want you to be with me all the time. Watch how I minister. Watch how I interact with people. And why? Because they were to represent Jesus above all else. And how can you properly represent a person and be an extension of that person and be an extension of their ministry if you don't know them? So Jesus said, I want you to come be with me. Hang out with me, spend time with me, watch me, observe me, interact, be a part, participate. I want you to be involved. And it would be essential for them to have a season of deeper fellowship with Jesus to be prepared to then be used by Jesus. So the first thing that happened here is they were to be with him. And I can tell you, this is always the first step that our Lord wants for our lives in preparation to be used by him, is that there would be a season in our life where we would truly press in deeper and spend lots of time with the Lord, getting to know the Lord, getting to understand his will, just walking closely with Jesus, observing how the Lord is doing his present ministry through the church, getting to know his heart better through his word and just walking closely with him. And if the Lord calls us to serve him, the first thing that matters to him more than what he can do through our life is what he would first do in our life. As we spend time with him and we develop in our relationship with him, that we might know him more closely. And that, I tell you folks, is what best, best prepares any person to be used by the Lord to represent him, to be sent forth as a servant. And this morning, let me say, if you desire to be used by the Lord, the first thing he wants more than anything, and the first thing that you need more than anything is just a deeper relationship with Jesus. That's the foundational basis to just walk more closely with him. I love Acts chapter 4, verse 13, whereas they saw the effective ministry of Peter and John in the early church. It says this, Acts 4, 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were, listen, the Bible tells us, perceived they were uneducated and untrained men. They marveled. And then they realized they had been with Jesus. You see the two things? They were marveling at the effectiveness of the ministry of Peter and John and how the Lord was working through their lives. And they, they perceived these men aren't educated. 
these men, nobody, they were never, never, never formally trained in religious schools or in, in aspects of ministry. They were never formally trained or educated, but they said, but we do notice one thing. These men have spent a lot of time with Jesus. And because they spent a lot of time with Jesus, they were very much like Jesus. They understood the heart of Jesus, the nature of Jesus, the way of Jesus, and his power was able to work through them as a great extension. And what an encouraging thing to realize, and I encourage you, look through church history. I mean, look among our own movement of churches, the Calvary Chapel movement. And again, we're not anti-education. We're not anti-training. But what we do realize is those things are an addendum they're not the critical necessity. You look how many people the Lord has used powerfully through church history, and many of them not formally educated, not formally trained. Hate to break your heart, case in point. But people who just were called by Jesus, walked closely with Jesus, and it was his power and his grace that worked through their life and let them be useful servants. So they were to first be with Jesus, the Bible tells us. That's most important. And then after they were with him, that he might also then secondarily what? Send them out. That is to serve, to work, and to do ministry labor. After they spent time, they were trained by the Lord through walking closely with him. And then he did desire ultimately to, of course, send them out to represent him, to be an extension of his work in the harvest fields to be able to reach the souls of people, to be able to help people, to serve in various ways, to be his instrument so that he could extend his work and work through their lives, particularly, it says, to go out and to preach, that is, to proclaim truth, as Jesus did, to preach the gospel message of salvation, to tell people their spiritual need, that they're sinners, that heaven and hell are re real eternal destinations, and that their sin makes them guilty before God, but yet that alone God loved them and that Jesus came to provide forgiveness of sins and that through receiving him, they could receive forgiveness and the hope of eternal life and go to heaven rather than hell. And they were to go out and to announce this kingdom gospel message to proclaim truth just generally to people, as well as it says also they were sent out also by Jesus to operate in his power. It says there they were to go out in the Lord's power to bring healing to physical affliction and sickness and to deliver demon-possessed people. So they were enabled by the Lord to bring about deliverance from physical afflictions, praying for recovery, bringing spiritual deliverance from demonic possession against people's lives. And again, we see in this an application as well of what the Lord intends to do for our lives. First, that we're with him, but then after we're with him, he doesn't want us to be a Christian pew potato for all of our lives. He then wants to send us out into our various harvest fields to be representatives, to speak his word, to proclaim the gospel, to share spiritual truth with people, as well as in practical ways to help people in all forms of suffering with physical pain and ailments and problems and spiritual and mental issues that we would go forth in the power and love of the Lord to counsel people and to pray for people and to lovingly help people and, and in the power of Jesus, relieve people from suffering and liberate them from the difficulties of their lives. But notice the only way that was possible as Jesus sent them out is notice, look, it says he sent them out thirdly with the power to do these things. Verse 15, he said he would give to them 
the power to heal sicknesses and cast out demons. So Jesus empowered them. They were enabled supernaturally to do the things Jesus was sending them out to do. They weren't operating in their own human strength. The word there, power, is the Greek term exousia, and it's a unique term. It speaks of having authorization from a throne where you're privileged to make determinations because you have the authorization from a higher throne. And so that you can make decisions and execute things, not in your own authority, but you can execute things with the authorization of the throne that is backing your actions and sending you out. This was the supernatural authorization that these 12 apostles were operating in, doing the Lord's ministry, and in the early days of the church. They were divinely authorized and entrusted with this heavenly authorization and power to do the Lord's work. It was at their disposal, this power, as they operated in it as channels of Jesus. And whenever the Lord sends any of us out, as he sent these initial 12 out, he always enables us to do whatever he asks of us to do. Whatever the ministry service may be, the Lord will supernaturally empower us to do his work because he knows, he knows, even if I don't and you don't become aware, he knows very clearly it is not enough, listen, it's not enough just to be trained. It's not enough just to be mentored. It's not enough just to give our best effort. It's not enough just to be educated or have experience in order to be effective for the Lord. Can the Lord use training and education and experience and mentorship? Yes, absolutely. But what we need most of all is supernatural enablement. What we need foremost is the power of the Lord to be able to be effective in our service for the Lord. Jesus speaks of that reality in Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1. Remember there where he tells us and the disciples in that day to wait until we've received power from on high. And he says, when you receive that power, it will be that which happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Jesus said, you wait. He tells them to go. He tells them what to do. But then he says, but wait until you're empowered. Because if you operate in your flesh, you can accomplish some things through physical activity, but Jesus said the spiritual dynamic will be absent from the work that you do. It will just be a really great lecture. And look, I have, I have listened, like you have as well, to lots of people over the years teach Bible studies. I've listened to people put together a very proficient Bible study, and it's like a lecture. And then I've listened to people who have communicated the Word of God and it may not even have been as polished as the person who proficiently communicated, but there's a spiritual dynamic. There's an anointing. There's a power of the Holy Spirit that's upon their life, and it goes through my heart like a knife at times. And you realize it's the dynamic of the power of the Holy Spirit that determines all the difference in ministry. Same thing with people I've, I've, I've over the years leading music, same thing. I've, I've been a part of... Good musicians, competent, beautiful singers, and then I've had other people lead worship at times, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon their life, and it is, it is anointed and powerful, and the Spirit of God moves. So again, whether it's a Sunday school teacher, whether it's teaching a Bible study, whatever it is, we want the Lord's power. We want to operate in His power. That is absolutely essential. 
Now, verses 16 down through 19 give to us the list of these 12 men, their names, they're recorded here, who Jesus selected. And these 12 men certainly reflect to us an encouragement, first of all, that the Lord can work through anyone. As well as they also reveal this to us at kind of a 30,000-foot perspective, that at the center of any team, if Jesus is at the center of that team, they can have differences but still function together. And I'll allude to that in a moment. The first person we're told Jesus selected was Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Of course, Peter means rock, and no doubt Jesus saw the potential and strong influential ability in Peter to be a real building block in the early days of ministry and in the church for the kingdom of God. We probably know more about Peter from the Gospels than most of the other 12. Peter, remember, he was a manual laborer in that day. He was a blue-collar worker. He was a fisherman. He was not formally educated, no religious training, but Peter was diligent. One thing we do know about Peter as a fisherman is he was a hard worker, and Jesus saw that. This guy's a hard worker. He's diligent. He'll, he'll be someone who I can work through. Peter was enthusiastic and bold, and he was even a natural leader to some degree. Naturally, by personality, he was kind of a natural-born leader. He took charge. He loved the Lord. But Peter also struggled in some ways, right? He was impulsive. Often Peter was saying things out loud in enthusiasm that afterwards people were thinking, oh, there he goes again. There he goes again, talking when he just is not thinking. Peter often acted impulsively without thinking and would kind of jump into things. And Peter just kind of tended to be an up and down guy. He was not the most stable character. He was someone we see in the gospels. One moment he's walking on water. Awesome. Next moment he's treading water though, and he's sinking. Peter was someone who one moment he has a spiritual revelation. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hath not revealed that to you, but my father in heaven. Jesus then says, let me explain a little more to you boys. We're going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be beaten, tortured, spit upon, suffered, crucified, and I'm going to die. Far be it from thou, Lord. That is not happening on my watch. You've got secret service Peter with you. To which Jesus then said to him in the next breath, get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God. Peter, you should have stopped at the first spiritual revelation. When you tried to extend it and get spiritual, now you're listening to the satanic thoughts of the devil, and you're now talking your own mind. And again, up and down, Peter. Peter, one moment, remember, he's you know, willing to die with the Lord. He's promising, I will never deny you. I will die with you. And then shortly afterwards, what's he doing? He falls asleep in the most important prayer meeting in history, and then he wakes up, and not too long after that, he denies the Lord three times publicly because he's afraid of a little girl's opinion of him. And again, Peter, just this up-and-down individual. But see, here's the thing that we find such encouragement about Peter. Despite his shortcomings and fleshly weaknesses, the Lord still used him. Though he at times was failing, Jesus worked with him patiently. He grew him. He matured him. And he works through Peter despite Peter. And that's such a great encouragement to us to overcome failures, to be restored and still used by the Lord. Peter reminds us that the Lord can use us despite who we are. 
and he can still work through our lives by his grace. The second two we're told in verse 17 were James and John. Notice it says, to whom the name or the title was given to them, end of verse 17, the sons of thunder. Now, that may sound like a really cool title, but it more reflected their personality and temperament, which was rather kind of somewhat coarse and harsh. These guys were kind of edgy. If you remember the account, Luke chapter 9, Jesus sent messengers ahead to go to a Samaritan village to get things ready for him for ministry. And remember in that Samaritan village, they, they weren't welcoming to Jesus. Well, James and John got word of that, and they came back to Jesus after his opportunity to come visit and minister there was declined. And they came to the Lord, and they said, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven and smoke the city? Probably why they were called the sons of thunder. I mean, these are probably among the disciples. I don't know. Maybe they were like the two mafia brothers among the uh, 12 disciples. You know, they got on black leather robes with a thunderbolt on the back. And, and Jesus is looking at these guys and thinking, Oy vey, I'm trying to save people, and they want to nuke a whole city because one person said, Nah, we don't want your rabbi to come to town. But again, consider Here's these two men. They were kind of rough around the edges and gruff, maybe not real loving, not real compassionate, but Jesus works through their lives. And at the end, what's John referred to as the apostle of love? And the Lord takes this person who wasn't very loving, wasn't very compassionate, was kind of, and the Lord gives him one of the most soft, tender, loving hearts. Again, the Lord's able to work through them despite their weaknesses. The next three in verse 18, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew. We don't know a whole lot about them. Andrew was Philip's brother. He always was bringing people to Jesus, and I no doubt think the Lord saw that. Philip was more of the one who was very practical. We always see him kind of calculating everything out. He was kind of the logical one among the bunch, very pragmatic. Very, He was the planner type among the group. Bartholomew, we know little of. Some think he's Nathaniel from chapter 1 of John. We don't know that. Next, we're told in our list here, also verse 18 of Matthew, and we saw him back in chapter 2. That was Levi, Matthew. He was a despised tax collector who lived as a traitor to the Jews working for the Roman Empire that occupied the, 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 the area of Israel at that time. And Matthew, remember, as a tax collector, he made a lucrative living by selfishly ripping people off and manipulating and taking advantage of people by cheating and lying. But remember what Jesus did? We saw back in uh, chapter 2 of Mark, he calls him to leave behind that shady, lucrative way of living, and a very prosperous life, and he calls him to leave that and to follow him, and it tells us that Levi or Matthew left all. And Matthew becomes a picture of us, of a man, if you would, who had a very dark and shady past. But his dark and shady past before coming to Christ did not preclude Jesus from working through him in a powerful way in the future. And look, maybe you, before you came to Christ, had a pretty dark past. Maybe you were a pretty shady, hardcore sinner, and you're thinking, listen, that doesn't preclude the Lord from using you. If you're saved and washed in the blood of Jesus, he can use you despite what your past has been. He can work through you in a mighty way, in powerful way, even as he did Matthew. Thomas, of course, we know, is someone who seemed to struggle and be a skeptic from time to time. He kind of tended to question everything, always needed evidence, but he was also very humble and very honest. You always see him just, what you see is what you get. He didn't put on much pretense whatsoever. 
James, the son of Alphaeus, interesting is referred to there in our verses there, and James, the son of Alphaeus, in other places in the accounts in the Gospels, is called James the Less. Now, was that an admirable title? Who do you want on your team? Give me that guy, James the Less, the Lesser. And I think perhaps maybe he was called that because maybe nobody knew anything about him. Maybe he was a very insignificant person in society, wasn't popular. He was the average Joe or the average James, if you would. He wasn't very famous. Much of what he did was done in obscurity, little attention. But look, folks, here's something to remember. Some of us may be called by Jesus to serve him in the realm of obscurity. And you may be the least of all who do such a thing. You may be someone like James the Less. Nobody ever really knows who you are. They don't know the things you do for the Lord. You're not in the public limelight. You're not on the next article of Christianity today. Nobody knows anything about you. Nobody sees the things that you do for the Lord. Maybe it's even just in the privacy of your own household and ministering in your family. And some of us will be called to just quietly serve the Lord in a place of obscurity where we are faithful in that sphere, but that's still ministry. And James the Less was perhaps used in that way. Simon, interestingly, the Canaanite, is also referred to as Simon the Zealot in verse 19. And zealots were the opposite. They were a radical group of Jews who hated Roman occupation. They were often called the Daggermen because they at times would lead riots and rebellions and would murder Romans. So imagine Jesus picks these two individuals, Matthew, who works with the Roman government, and then Simon the Zealot, who, Zealot, who hates Romans. These, I mean, this would be like, I'm just going to say, it'd be, it'd be like people from the left and the right, or Democrats and Republicans. This would be like putting on the same team like Hillary Clinton and Ronald Reagan. Or I mean, just you're talking like they'll kill each other. But with Jesus in the center, very different. But they worked as a team. Their differences didn't separate them. Perhaps the most interesting of all, of course, is Judas Iscariot, we're told there, who we know was the portrayer of the Lord. And again, Jesus picks a guy to be on his team. Think with me, if you would, for a moment. He picks someone to be on his team who he knows is going to steal money from the treasury. Isn't money the most important thing in ministry? Apparently not to Jesus. He picked the guy that he knew would keep stealing ministry money. And he picked the guy that he knew would ultimately betray him so significantly to cause pain and hardship in his life that would backstab him. But why would Jesus pick someone and give him a blessed privilege knowing that that would happen? Perhaps to reveal to all of us and to mankind that even the disobedience and sin of people never hinders the plan of God. That even though Judas did what he did, it hurt Jesus and it hurt his own life but it did not hinder what the Lord ultimately still wanted to do. And so important that we remember this, because let me say this morning, the Lord can turn a curse into a blessing. The Lord can take what the enemy intends for evil and turn it around for a good and beneficial thing. And perhaps, perhaps the Lord has permitted in your life a painful experience, maybe even a bitter betrayal, maybe something that traumatized or hurt you or wounded you. But hear me this morning, that does not have to destroy your life. You don't have to live like a victim the rest of your life. Jesus used a very painful experience, and he let it just contribute to the greater good and for the purposes of the kingdom of God. 
We look at these 12 men here, and no doubt, if you're anything like me, I find great encouragement because I realize these men were not well-trained, not highly educated. They didn't have superior skills and great connections, and they weren't the high school most likely to secede bunch. But aren't you glad? Because that would mean that's what we always have to be looking for, and we don't have to look for that. Jesus saw these men not in their past failures or their present limitations. He saw them in their potentiality by his power. And he changed their lives, and he changed lots of lives through their lives. And you know what I say to you in this room this morning? He can do the same through all of our lives. He can do the same in all of our lives. Jesus is not concerned, nor is he limited or hindered by your past your past experiences, or even your present limitations or weaknesses, Jesus sees your potential by his power and his grace working through your lives. Let's